Again, it is a, a, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here this morning. I've been at this church more than once, and um, keep you guys in my heart. We pray for you often. I have the privilege of serving on the commission for this church, which is uh, with Ken, Ken Dodal and different elders from around the area, praying for you guys, helping you know, Carlos with uh, decision-making and uh, different aspects of church life here. So we're not always visible on Sunday morning as I'm at um, New Covenant Presbyterian Church in the Kempsville area. However, uh, we pray for you frequently and love you guys. So really glad to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. So we're going to read uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's in the bulletin. You can turn in your Bible there um, during the sermon. I think it'd be great if you have a Bible open. That will be wonderful. As you turn uh, to 1 Thessalonians, let me t- just say a couple words about myself. So for those of you who haven't met me before, just want to share just a little bit um, so you feel like you know a little, um, little bit about me. The book that probably describes my life is um, the Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, okay? Born in Detroit, uh, around age 18, moved to San Diego, lived there for 10 years where I really cut my teeth in ministry and walking with the Lord. Um, moved to St. Louis uh, to, start semina- to start seminary at, a, at an advanced old age. Um, met my wife there. Um, we then moved to New Jersey. We're there for three and a half years, and then uh, the Lord brought us here, very clearly guided us here where we've been for four years. And then in the midst of that, I've you know, traveled a lot of other places, and I've had the blessing of just seeing the church in a lot of different contexts, different cultural contexts, whether overseas or in all the different states of, not all, but many of the different states in our country, different sizes, different situations, and that has been a blessing and has helped with perspective have been a friend of, of Cron Gibson's and Elizabeth's, as well as of Carlos's. My wife um, was born in New York, but pretty much grew up in St. Louis. And so once she met me, then all the traveling started and um, been to, again, like I said, New Jersey and then here. And um, our son was born when we moved here uh, four years ago. So he's about to turn four. And um, one of the things that has, I want to share two things that have really shaped our lives these past couple years. One is, in the last few years, the Lord has really um, confronted, in our own hearts, hidden idols. You know, the Lord has confronted in us things that we would tend to give too great a prominence to. And as the Lord has confronted those, we found it's been in love because he's really freed us. Now, that's an ongoing process. There's things, I, I know there's, you probably heard the quote before where John Calvin said the human heart is like an idol factory. Okay, these little things keep being produced and the Lord has to keep dealing with them. So no way we can say, well, we've arrived now, we have no struggles, but we see the freedom of the Lord putting himself first and moving other things out of the way. We've really had some very specific um, dealings with the Lord in the last few years that have been very freeing. Another thing that has really shaped us these last uh, couple years in particular is that two years ago, our son, whose name is Cullen, was diagnosed with autism. Now, this radically altered, over the course of two years, this radically altered my worldview in way more ways than I can go into, and so I won't. 
my perspective on many things changed, including one aspect of today's message, which is the importance, the God-given place of Christian community. Um, and so, um, so we'll talk about that. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and by the way, I want to say my wife isn't here, but she wanted to be. Our son is not doing well this morning, um, not because of autism per se, but because of a related situation um, with his GI system that's just all out of whack, more this week than it has ever been, and um, he's just a bit uncomfortable, and she's nursing him along, which um, we read about nursing mothers in this chapter, so there you go, but she would have loved to have been here, so, um, so unfortunately she's not. Well, let's look then at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And what you'll see here is the Apostle Paul, along with Silvanus and Timothy, who are the ones speaking to the church in Thessalonica, speak about their love for the church and the importance. In verse 8, you'll see the importance of a shared gospel and a shared life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let me read. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Please pray with me. Lord, we pray that you will bring your word home to our hearts, and please make the reality seen in this passage all the more real and vital in this congregation and in our congregations across this region. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the text that we read earlier um, when we prayed, where the text in Matthew where it speaks about Jesus going through the towns, preaching the gospel, healing diseases. I was actually reading that this morning devotionally. just so happened that's where I was as I've been in the book of Matthew myself. And as I read that, I thought about how Jesus' miracles authenticated his message. And it's interesting because... We often would think it's backwards um, or the other way around, but Jesus would surprise people. For example, he once said to a man who was in need of healing, who couldn't walk, your sins are forgiven. And everyone around him, the religious leaders of that day, were saying, who is this who says your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. Mental note to self, by the way. The reason we see in Scripture that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God, 
When I was a kid, it, I, I heard it called God in a bod, that Jesus is fully God, but fully man. We see that not only in theological statements in Scripture, but in the way that he acts. And when he forgave sins, he was acting like God. And people knew it, and they were offended. And so Jesus said, in order that you might know that the Son of Man, a term he used for himself, has the power to forgive sins, and they said to the man, rise up and walk, and he walked. So Jesus saw the miracles as authenticating his message. Now, in the passage we have before us in 1 Thessalonians, we see a different kind of miracle authenticating the message, and that is the miracle of authentic, self-giving, we might say selfless, community. And that's not just a cute thing to say. You look around our world, you do not see much selflessness. You see a lot of selfishness, don't you? Okay, you look in the political arena, you don't see a lot of selfless community. You look in, even in families, you see families torn apart by selfishness. And the Apostle Paul, coming to the Thessalonians, speaking to them about their experience, reminds them that this gospel they believe and that they hold so dear, they can have a confidence in it because of the love that they have experienced, not only from Paul, but from all those who are with them and the love they've experienced together. And he says in verse 8, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, for you had become very dear to us. And so the gospel has life-giving power. It is a message that has life-giving power, and I'll say more about that in a moment, but also the sharing of life together in a way that is real, in a way that is authentic, in a way that is forgiving, in a way that is gracious, in a way that is selfless, is also very powerful in authenticating the message of the gospel. And, and you know, if you're to think, if you were to think of it in terms of Wall Street, you can think of it this way. Jesus is pretty bearish when it comes to miracles. He often said to people, you know what, you're going to see the miracles, but you're not going to believe. Or you're going to come because you want to be healed, but it's not going to stick. Because it's something that you want for yourself or you want to be dazzled. So even though miracles would authenticate the gospel, and that's significant in Scripture, it's nothing like the way Jesus speaks about true self-giving love. There, Jesus is bullish. That's when Jesus, the night before he dies, he's telling his disciples, all men will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And it's there that we see throughout the New Testament the call again and again to love one another, to be in Christian community together, to have love to sacrifice for others, to share our lives with others, that is continually repeated and without qualification because Jesus is bullish on that particular point. So we, I want to speak this morning about the shared gospel and the shared life. I'm going to say um, 
this about the shared gospel. The shared gospel really does have great power. It really does. I didn't read this section, but if you were to go back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you can look at it in your Bible there. If you're new here today, um, the Bibles that are on the seats, this is found on page 819, if I remember correctly. But verse 5, Paul says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so you became an example to all the believers in the region. The word came with power, with the Holy Spirit. Okay, the word of God, the shared word of God has great power. Now, what is that gospel? What is that gospel that has such power? The way it's outlined in Thessalonians is this. You can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, and it says as follows. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how, listen to this, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You can almost work backwards there to see what the gospel is. The gospel is recognizing there's a great problem. We are enemies with God. Okay, but in order to be sheltered from that God who will judge the living and the dead, that true God who does have true wrath, as unpopular as that concept is in our world and at the beach, God who delivers us from wrath sent Jesus to deliver us. His death on the cross was a deliverance because he paid the penalty for our sin. And it says he was raised from the dead, that we wait for him. So the Thessalonians came to believe in Jesus, who, who through him they had forgiveness of sin, but also they had an eternal hope. They looked to him. They had good news a new motivation in their lives in knowing that this life was not all there is, but there is an eternal hope. And that eternal hope is centered around Christ and around God the Father who sent the Son. And it says, you turned from idols to serve that God. And I spoke earlier, you know, idols are anything uh, that would stand in the place of God. And so there is a turning from other loves, other passions, other pursuits to, to, to either put them out of our life or sometimes to put them in their rightful place where God takes center stage. And so this is the gospel they believed. And it was powerful in their lives. The gospel means good news, and news has power. We saw this last week. Bad news has power, right? All the news about the markets, the news about the political deals. These had power. They were shaping how people thought. They were shaping how people planned for the future. Markets are affected. Will new jobs be created? What will the economy do? Bad news has power. But similarly, good news has great power as well. Okay? You know, one piece of news is, hey, you're going to have a baby. That's news that has can shape your world. 
okay? That news can shape your world. Good news, though we hear so much less of it, has power to shape us, to change our outlook on life. But also, the shared life has power. The shared life has power as it authenticates that good news. Again, verse 8. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Now, when you look at chapter 2, the part that's printed in your bulletin, what you find is that the gospel actually freed Paul and his companions up so that they could love and so they could serve. So, in chapter 2, he says a lot about the fact that what they... um, that the way they served was out of obedience to God is because they were serving God. They put God first that they then served and loved the Thessalonians. But along with that, um, we see that they're not only motivated um, by that obedience, but by the freedom, by the freedom. You know, to turn from idols to serve the living God is really a way of saying we're being set free. We're being set free from things that that hold us, that slow us down, that shackle us, that are unnecessary weights. Any idol you serve, anything you serve other than the Lord is going to slow you down, weigh you down, and be be a a cruel master, okay? And um, how many of you have seen this for the—let me pause for a second. How many of you have seen this in the simple areas of life, okay? Um, before we had our son, we had pets. And um, we had whippets. They're like greyhounds, but they're half the size, okay? And, um, and those dogs love to race. They love to run. They love to sprint. And so we would take them racing. Now, by the way, there's no gambling involved, no money involved, except maybe the $10 registration fee. But basically, people would get together fairly casually, fairly grassroots, find a big field, this is all in New Jersey, and, um, you know, let the whippets race. And you might think, dogs, how cute. That's a great little hobby. And you'd think that a little community that formed around animals would be a very uh, friendly, fun-loving group, wouldn't you? There was more backbiting in that community. And I'm not talking about the dogs biting each other. I'm not. There was backbiting, there was cheating, there was exalting, there was hatred, there was enmity. There was more unpleasantness in that, env- in that environment because it involved competition than you would ever dream. It was crazy. And I wonder how many of you have seen in some area where you've maybe had a hobby and kind of gone deep into it, you see people pretty, pretty chained up by it, okay? And you don't, you don't have to look far. Things that, when something gets an undue dominance in our life, it it produces ugly results. And Paul is saying here that they were freed, as they were freed to serve the living and true God. That gave them that freedom to love and serve these at Thessalonica. And really what this was was a church plant, like you guys. Okay, It was a, a newer church, a growing church, a developing church. And, um, and they had loved them and spent time there. And so the shared gospel has a life-giving power, but the shared life 
also has a power, and it's a power of authenticating that good news. It has the power of showing the reality of that good news. Now, I'm sure some of you come from backgrounds where you would say you've not seen Christians love each other well. And that is a great, great tragedy. Because what Jesus says and what this text points us to is that as we believe the gospel and as we are freed by the gospel, to, it will free us to love our Lord and to love his people and to love others in a way where we truly do see them as family. Paul speaks of himself like a mother. A few verses later, if you were to read on, he speaks of himself as a father. There is a, the Bible really means it when it says we're family. When you've seen a church behave otherwise, it's a great tragedy. And I can't justify it. I can only lament it. And it breaks the heart of God as well. But I will say this. Um, I wanted to share with you this morning that there is, when we speak about the gospel and we speak about the Christian community being so both so important, there is a perspective here that we might call a battlefield perspective. Okay, a battlefield perspective. These two things are going to be fought against because they are important to God, because they bring joy to human beings, they will be battled against. And again, if you're newer here, you're saying, what do you mean? Are you saying you really believe in Satan? You really believe in in a a personification of evil like that? And the answer is yes. Jesus spoke of it. Jesus spoke of Satan, demons, the spiritual warfare continually. And you only have to look around to see the reality of it. And what the Bible says is the evil that you see in the world has a few different streams to it. Some of it is from the human heart. Some of it is from the cultural systems. And some of it is from a spiritual dimension that you're not going to know much about unless you really have your thoughts immersed in his word. So Jesus, God's word, speaks about evil, speaks about that battle as being multidimensional, whereas in our world we'll tend to speak of it one-dimensionally. If there's a big problem, you'll hear about it on the news, what do we need to do? What law do we need to pass? How do we fix it by forcing someone to do something? The Bible has a much bigger view, and so there is a battle, and the gospel will be battled against, and so will Christian community. So, if you have seen Christians behaving badly, I'm very sorry. And, if, and when you see me behaving badly, please forgive me. Because we are in a battle, and um, there is a battlefield perspective. So let me say a couple words about that. The gospel which is so vital to our life and our eternal life, will be fought against. And if you were to look at this passage, you will see that Paul speaks a lot about how the word of God came to these believers in the context of great affliction, great trouble. And you can trace that back in the Bible to see when this church first started, there's all sorts of people fighting against this gospel message going out and um, lives being threatened, and it was, an, it was not a pretty situation because the gospel was being battled against. And so the context is the battlefield. Now, 
when the gospel is attacked, it can be attacked directly through heresy. And when we say heresy, what we mean is not just any teaching that we don't prefer, but we mean a teaching that is so bad that it would actually move a person not Instead of moving a person toward the grace of God, it would move them away from the grace of God. So, these false teachings can come in very nice forms. You know, people might say, hey, Jesus is a wonderful person, great teacher, great example. That's all that he is. And they'll speak about Jesus. They might call him the Christ. They might have many good things to say about him with their ultimate Bottom line being, Jesus was an example. He was not God. Now, what's so bad about that is not that we have a big checklist and we say, hey, you're not checking the box. What's bad about that is that whenever Jesus ends up as only an example, then you don't have a Savior. The, the way Jesus is a Savior is that he, unlike us, could be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he could come and rescue us, that he wasn't sinking like us, he came and rescued. And so whether it is Mormonism, whether it is some form of modern scholarship, to say Jesus is an example is detrimental to being rescued, being saved by him. Similarly, um, getting slightly more controversial, perhaps. Very popular book this summer. Best-selling list. You know, nice title to the book. Love Wins. Who wouldn't want to think that love wins? It's a denial of the biblical doctrine of what we read earlier, the wrath of God, or hell. Now, you might say, well, shouldn't that be a negotiable point? After all, it's a very distasteful thing to us. However, as you, if you were to read Thessalonians, you'd see again and again to be saved, to be rescued, means to be rescued from that certainty of judgment. And if you take away that doctrine, not only are you calling Jesus false and a liar because of how often he spoke about it, but you're also removing something that's very important for someone to know if they're to cry out to God for salvation. So a heresy is that direct attack against the gospel, but the gospel can also be, instead of directly attacked, often what we'll find is it's just diminished. It might be diminished in your life as you come to faith and you believe that you're forgiven of your sins. Wow, God forgave me, though I lived this way. But then time goes on and you think to yourself, boy, I thought I'd be further along as a Christian than now. And I'm seeing myself still dealing with these certain sins or still dealing with this issue and you find yourself saying, man, the Lord must be really bummed out at me. And you start viewing yourself as someone who's in the very back row. And if you get into heaven, it's going to be kind of like sneaking in that side door, taking the very back seat, and God's love will be like washing over everybody, and then it'll just kind of like trickle onto your feet, right? Like standing maybe at the very edge of, you know, the shore. And you begin seeing yourself more as very removed from the love of God. But if you believe the gospel, your sins are forgiven. That's why for Jesus, that was the big message. He said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Everyone was offended. And then he said, well, if you really want to know it's true, rise up and walk. But to him, the walking was secondary. Forgiveness of sins, that's huge. And 
for that to really take root in our heart, we have to be careful because it can be diminished if we're not careful, if we're not really believing regularly in that. So the gospel can be directly attacked, but it can be diminished. And it can be diminished if we're not sharing it with one another. I know that for me in marriage, it is much easier to share the law than the gospel. It's much easier to say to my wife, this is what we should do. God says this. Why aren't you doing this? Of course, will I look at myself as often? Unfortunately not. Much easier to say that than to say, than to speak the gospel, than to speak about the love of God, to speak about how God cares for us, loves us. Because it's always easier um, to the human heart to go in the direction of the rules. So the gospel can be diminished if we're not speaking it to each other, if we're not really believing it uh, deeply, regularly. But not only will the gospel be attacked, but so will authentic Christian community. Now, community can be a buzzword. That's why I keep saying to you, I'm speaking about authentic Christian community, getting in each other's lives, sharing life together. It, it, it will inevitably involve things like forgiveness. It will inevitably involve things like going to someone who you're very uncomfortable with because of what they did to you and interacting with them and loving them in Christ. It will inevitably involve working with people who are different than you and giving up some of your rights. It will inevitably involve saying, you know, this is the way I like things, and things aren't that way, and I'm okay with that, because it's not just about me, it's about us. And so authentic Christian community, really living together, really sharing life together, is going to be, um, that kind of community is going to be attacked. And it can be attacked directly, through someone who comes in who's very divisive, and any heresy or false teaching will be divisive, but so will other um, behaviors or forms of insubordination or forms of gossip. And then, very directly, unity and community is attacked. But it can also be diminished and therefore attacked in a more subtle form when we diminish in our minds the reality of the family of God. So let's be honest with ourselves right now. I want you to put on your thinking cap for a second and really be honest with yourself. Do you really believe, if you're a believer in Christ, do you really believe that the people around you who have also been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who really belong to God, do you really believe that those around you are your family? As much your family, more so according to the word of God, and according to what eternity will prove out, than your physical family. Do you believe that? See, the, the Bible says it a lot. We're a family. We're children of God, sons and daughters. Paul uses family imagery all the time, including this passage. But do we really believe it and live it? Or do we see church like we'd see membership in the gym? You know, a thing that we have membership in, come to once a week, especially at the beginning of the new year, kind of fade away, that's okay. Do we see it as a place we come once a week? Or do we see it as our community? Are we letting people into our lives? Are we getting into their lives? Okay. I would love to have family living in Virginia Beach. Instead, my family is all 15 to 20 hours away. Next year, it looks like my wife's parents are going to move out here. 
we're going to spend a lot of time together. You know, we can't wait for them to be close because we're going to go over to their place. They're going to come over to our place. Finally, family, right? Well, what about our Christian community? Do we say, hey, I have family living near me. And, you know, let's not use the excuse, well, they live 15 minutes away. Because I can guarantee you next year, it doesn't matter if my in-laws live a half hour away, 45 minutes away, or two minutes away, we're going to spend a lot of time together. Do we see ourselves as family so we are getting into each other's lives and we see the importance of that? So we don't want to subtly diminish the body of Christ by failing to really see that we are the family of God. I had a hundred things to say this morning. I think I said two or three of them. And so as I wrap up, I feel like there's so much left unsaid, and I apologize. But let me just leave you with a few questions. Those of you who are leaders, and that can be maybe you're a formal leader, like you're an elder in the church, or an informal leader, maybe a community group leader, maybe an up-and-coming leader. Do you see that getting in the lives of God's people is a great privilege, and that you're free to do it because the Lord has loved you, has met your needs. And do you see the importance that it is for the outside world to see the gospel, that they see the love that we have for each other? And we need that quantity time if we're going to have quality time. Leaders, do you see that? Those of you who are investigators, kind of investigating the Christian faith, trying to decide if this thing is real. I would encourage you, one, to be forgiving. As you can tell, we're all working on this. But also, are you getting close enough to really see what the Christian life is all about? Or are you just kind of judging it only from the, you know, once a month, once every few months kind of drop in? Are you getting close enough? And do you see... And as you do investigate and as you're looking for the Lord's will in your life, are you looking for a place to be part of a community? Not just a place to attend, not just a place to sing, but a place to really be together. I'd want to encourage you in that this morning. We're going to go to the Lord's table. And as we do, one of the great realities of the Lord's table is the way that it shows us that we are united by the death of Christ, by the life of Christ. When we take that bread, we all take the same bread. We all take the same cup. That means the person here who makes $50,000 less than you this year is in the same position as you are. That means that the person who looks different from you or is of a different age group than you or is of a different background than you they have the exact same need. You have something very profound in common with them. We all take the same bread and the same cup. So when we go to communion, in just a few minutes, let's keep that in mind. And let me just pray for us right now. Father in heaven, teach us to share the gospel. Teach us to share our lives. When we take communion in just a few moments, we pray, O Lord, that we'll be reminded that by your grace we all have the same need, the same Savior, and may we love one another well as we acknowledge that. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.